This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This should be played at high volume, preferably in a residential area. What's up, guys? Welcome to the first edition of the Patreon-exclusive Top Rope Nation Classic Show. I'm your host, Ryan Drosty, joined here by Justin Joint and Kyle Ross. And we're here with a special look back at 1991's WWF SummerSlam event. This is going to be something that we're doing here on the Top Rope Nation podcast exclusively for Patreon supporters. So if you go to www.patreon.com slash Nation, you can check out how you can support the show, get access to exclusive content like the classic show, like Top Rope Nation Free For All, and special live video casts of our weekly flagship show, Top Rope Nation. Support the little guys. You know, we're not doing this making thousands of dollars, making ad reads like some of these professional wrestlers turned podcast hosts. We're your everyday fans who I think do a pretty good job breaking down professional wrestling, whether it's nostalgia or the current product. So if you want to show your appreciation to us, support us rather than those guys making big bucks. We're the everyday heroes, my friends. So check it out. Patreon.com slash Top Rope Nation. So, like I said, I'm joined here by Kyle and Justin. I think they're pretty pumped to go back to our childhood here to review SummerSlam 91. I was a young seven years old at the time. Justin, what do you remember about 1991? Oh, man. Uh, I, I think my life was uh, basically wrestling back then. I, I couldn't tell you much else. Yeah. <laughs> Kyle Ross, what do you remember about 1991? I was already having threesomes. <laughs> <laughs> the man, the myth, the legend. Kyle That's not Ross. true. That's not true, honey, if you're listening. <laughs> Maybe in the sandbox with your action figures and Barbies. Yeah, yeah, that, wasn't a, that wasn't until 92. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, on that note, that's the kind of content you're going to get here on Patreon, guys. And I didn't Only mention- your Patreon. Only your Patreon shows, though. I don't tell jokes like that on the real one. Yeah, uh, on the we, we don't shows. get quite that crude on the on the real shows. By the way, I did want to mention that this show is going out to everyone. We thought the the first Patreon exclusive show just you know wet your appetite, see what you guys are going to get on these shows if you support the show. Uh, we'd send this out for everyone, so you can just kind of get a hold of what the style is going to be like. So. Hopefully everyone enjoys tuning in this week, and you'll be tuning in long into the future for these classic flashbacks. But 
Before we get in that time machine and travel back to August of 1991, I wanted to just kind of go down. It's kind of interesting, guys, if you go back and you look at what was actually going down in 1991, because like we said, we were pretty young at the time. Um, We don't really remember too much other than watching pro wrestling on the weekends, maybe. Um, You're still cracking up. I've rattled you, I believe. (laughs) Kyle in the sandbox having interesting interactions between Barbies and G.I. Joes. But at the time, guys, listen to this. You could get a new house for $120,000 in August of 1991. I know we've all been homeowners. That sounds pretty damn awesome to me. $120,000 was the national average at the time. Uh, your average American was making just under $30,000 per year. Now, of course, you got to factor in inflation, but uh, it's quite a bit lower than we are today. Um, one of the things I remember about 91 was the, the start and the finish, because it didn't last very long, of the first Iraq war. I'm sure you guys well, have some memories yeah, of that. And that, and that will become important <laughs> later on. Exactly. That's going to be coming. This podcast. Because of the storyline in the main event, of course, and that was kind of coming in from earlier in the year, the Rumble and WrestleMania, which we'll get into. Um, and then lastly, you know, I'm sure a lot of people tuning in are sports fans. So in 1991, the Super Bowl, you had the reigning Super Bowl champion, New York Giants, who defeated the Buffalo Bills in that Super Bowl 25, which actually is the first Super Bowl I really remember watching when Scott Norwood missed that field goal. So you got the reigning champions in the NFL, the Giants. Uh, the Minnesota Twins were on their way later in the year to defeating the Atlanta Braves in the World Series, their last Maybe World Series Maybe the greatest title. World Series ever. <laughs> it was a good one. And the Chicago Bulls were fresh off winning their first of six oh, NBA titles. here we yes. go. I mean, I wasn't going to elaborate too much on that as a Bulls fan, but those were good days. They beat the uh, Los Angeles Lakers in the 91 Finals in five games. So that's the stage, guys. So... I think SummerSlam 91, we can't talk about this without listening to the fantastic intro. You got Vince McMahon at his greatest right here. Let's get in the time machine. Let's go back to SummerSlam 91. Monday, August 26, 1991, live from Madison Square Garden in New York City for SummerSlam 91, which uh, actually kicked off with a dark match, so none of us were able to review that upon uh, doing the show, obviously, where Coco Beware, WWE Hall of Famer, defeated Kato. Do you guys know who Kato was? It was Paul Diamond. 
Yes, mm -hmm. one half of Bad Company. So uh, he was pretty new to the WWF at this time, I think. I don't know how long. Uh, they had done the New Orient Express by at the Rumble, yeah, because the Rockers and the New Orient they work at the Rumble, so um, they'd done the switch. I actually just watched the the show they did on USA Network leading up the SummerSlam Spectacular. They had all three Orient Express guys. Uh, working together, which I think may have been the only time they did that, but he'd been in for most of 91. Okay. So, as the show kicks off after the intro that you guys just heard, um, I think it's fair to say, just from re-watching this in the preceding days, that most of the matches with the best work was like on the front half of the show, as far as ring work quality goes. Would you guys agree? Justin? Yes. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, Just between the the first two matches, actually. Yeah, I mean, SummerSlam 91 is definitely not a great show as far as uh, match quality goes, but it's a pretty easy watch, I felt. Like, most of the matches are pretty short. Um, actually, just looking down the card here, uh, nothing outside of that Brett Perfect match goes over 13 minutes or so. So, it is a pretty easy watch to go back and, and go through. And by the way, when we were trying to decide which show to review for this first classic show, uh, we did put a poll up on the at Top Rope Nation Twitter account, you guys wanted SummerSlam out of, uh, I think I put up choices of the Great American Bash, uh, King of the Ring, some other summer shows, and you guys picked SummerSlam. So this is the one we chose. That first match, we had the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith, uh, Ricky Steamboat, with his fire-breathing gimmick where he made that fantastic entrance, and the Texas Tornado, Kerry Von Erich, taking on Power and Glory, Hercules and Paul Roma, and the Warlord. Uh, Kyle Russ, what did you think of this match? It's okay. I don't think they, other than that SummerSlam Spectacular, so the guys who wrestled the Orient Express on that show that I watched were uh, Dragon, Bulldog, and Tornado. And I think that was when they first announced this, because I watched the last event center, or the SummerSlam report with Gene Oakland. This wasn't even announced the week before on TV. Interesting. Yeah, so that, that was kind of interesting. Um, there's not much to this. Uh, two things, though, that I you note right away. One, hot MSG crowd for the show. And two, the Monsoon, Piper, Heenan trio is very, very entertaining throughout the show. <laughs> Starting here, I mean, the back and forth between Piper and Heenan is great with, like, you know, Monsoon playing the elder statesman. Uh, you know, it, it's just, it's really funny. I, I would say commentary-wise, this is one of my favorite shows in WWE history. It's really interesting you say that because when I was researching for this show, I found a pretty divisive commentary on uh, what people thought of Roddy Piper on commentary. What did you think, Justin? Do you like Piper on commentary here? Uh, you know, it's interesting you guys bring that up because it's still today my one mutant power is that I just I completely block out commentary. In fact, in my notes for this show, I only have one line that jumped out of me that I had to, I had to write down. Um, otherwise, like even in today's product back then, I, I, I can't really concentrate on the commentary. I'm, I'm too much into the match. I'm kind of like you actually. I'm kind of half and half. I do kind of tune it out after a while. Uh, Piper is like so eccentric on the mic that he, it's kind of hard to tune him out because he is for me, because he, he's really loud, um, and like Kyle said, the bantering back and forth. I felt like overall I liked him. I'd give him a thumbs up, but I could see how he kind of would 
maybe grate on some people throughout the show after a while. He's typically not good on the other shows um, that he does. I'm trying to think what he did SummerSlam the year before with Vince. He wasn't very good then. Um, And he did Survivor Series the year before, too, with Gorilla. Uh, that wasn't very good, and they did. I think he did the Rumble with Gorilla too, and he was not that good. This was, I think, the banter with Heenan is what made it. I mean, they had some great lines on each other, like when Heenan told Piper, "I heard when you were a kid, your parents ran away from home," and, and Roddy <laughs> Piper is in fact an orphan, by mm-hmm. the way. So, um, I mean, that's really good stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I have as, a hard time giving thumbs down to commentary anytime Bobby Heenan's part of the crew, yeah. just because. Yeah, he's and so and this awesome. was like the height of Heenan. I mean, this was basically the opposite of his WCW run. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> as, yeah. As for the match, uh, you know, we've got three future or three former slash future Intercontinental Champions on the babyface side. It, and it was pretty obvious who was going over here. Um, the drag, yeah. The dragon is one of the oddest things from this time period, how they just did not refer to him as Ricky Steamboat and basically, acknowledge, you know, like did not acknowledge his past with the promotion at all. Mm-hmm. I always thought that was really strange, too, considering the legendary matches he had had, yeah. in, or, or I should say maybe the legendary match he had had in the WWF just a few years prior. Um, yeah, going back, watching this, like, as a kid, renting it, um, probably not long after I'd rented WrestleMania three. I, I always thought that was kind of odd, like he was portrayed as a completely different person almost. Um, yeah, Justin, I thought, I thought Justin had a, a pretty good idea as far as when we do these shows – uh, kind of an angle we're going to take when we go through the matches. Justin, you want to go ahead and break down to the listeners your idea as far as evaluating these matches? Definitely. I w- just real quick, uh, Kyle bringing up uh, the three baby faces uh, being you know future or past Intercontinental Champions. It's kind of interesting that Kerry won it the year before and then Bulldog wins it the following year, yeah, both, both at true. SummerSlam. Um, so watching that match... I couldn't help but think, was the apex for all of these guys ahead of them or behind them? I, I think the majority was behind, uh, with a couple exceptions. Uh, I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on that. Well, the one that stands out to me right away is, I'd say the Bulldogs' apex was ahead of them for the next year at 92, even though the, the tag team in the 80s was obviously very, very good. But as a singles competitor, I think Bulldogs' apex was still in front of them. Um, would you agree, Kyle? Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, the following SummerSlam is definitely the Bulldogs' apex. Yeah, um, Steamboat, I would agree, behind him um, with the 80s. That- that would have to be the trilogy with Flair. Otherwise, an argument could be made for WrestleMania three. Yeah, for sure. Um, Kerry Von Erich behind him, I would say. Kyle? Yeah. <laughs> Didn't have much <laughs> time left, like, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, it was funny. So that match, I, you know, so I've watched this show enough times that I didn't need to watch it before this. But I watched, like, a ton of the TV around it just to accentuate it. And that TV match I watched with these three guys against the Orient Express, um, Texas Tornado was either high on cocaine, drunk, or both. <sighs> I, I really recommend seeking out the SummerSlam Spectacular anyone to watch. He is behaving oddly. And, um, yeah, I mean, his entire WWF run is not his apex. His, his apex is the early 80s. And did, did he lose his foot 
during his WWE run or was no, it before? No, that was well before. It was like 80, okay. It was like eighty six. I want to say it was. That's what I. It, my eyeballs were kind of glued to his foot almost the entire match. I actually. That's funny you should say that because that anytime I watch Texas Tornado WWF matches, I think of that, and I'm always looking at his boots too. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's kind of like a crude reference, but uh, I can't help but think about it too watching him. Yeah. Um, the other side of the ring. I, th- I, I think there's just I think there's just one apex ahead. Okay, go ahead. Paul Roma Four Horsemen run. I, I would think. I think the rest of them is behind. Yeah, I would concur. Kyle. Paul Roma as a horseman is very is something I wish I could erase from my memory. <laughs> I actually I actually liked Pretty Wonderful in WCW. Um. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously the whole heel side here is on the descent. I kind of feel bad for Power and Glory. If you remember the previous year's SummerSlam where they go over the Rockers, it seemed like they were in line for a big push and that just died. Mm-hmm. And they were like a nothing act here. And, you know, the Warlord was never any good as a single. I believe, by the way, speaking of the Rockers, we'll get to this in a few matches. I think there was, I didn't pause it and rewind, but I kind of noticed it at a glance. I think there was a, a backstage sighting of the Rockers on this show. Did you guys catch that? No, I missed it. Yeah. Sean was hurt, I think, during this time. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I saw him, but I, I didn't confirm. I didn't go back. I'll tell you where I where I saw this in a few matches when we get to it. But this made me think of it. You mentioned throwing out the Rockers' name. Um, so okay, as far as that first match goes, yeah, I mean it's a decent match. Not a lot to talk about. It's it's a good show starter, I'd say, just because there's a lot of big names out there. Um, but they parlay that into one of the most iconic matches of the time period. Maybe one of the most, well, I'd say for sure one of the most iconic Intercontinental Championship matches of all time. So unless you guys have any thoughts on that opening match, let's go right into this one. Any other thoughts? I would just say the Dragon did not last long, unfortunately. He was back in WCW a few months after that and with that awesome debut at the Clash of Champions. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would just add... Uh, it, it, the pop when the baby faces won just amazed me. Because if you just had some random three-on-three match on SummerSlam now, I, I, I can't imagine the crowd getting behind that in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, this was a hot crowd. I mean, being in New York definitely helps. But this is a really good crowd right from the get-go. So, yeah, they were they're ready. They're ready to go. So, um, Brett and Perfect walked into a good situation here coming out second. And uh, this was the, by the way, this was the final wwf appearance for perfect's manager the coach at the time john tolos and uh yeah perfect was hurt i think everyone kind of knows the story he had he had a pretty bad back injury that would plague him the rest of his career heading into the match uh still wanted to work against brett they had a great classic match i think Meltzer gave it four stars in the observer when i looked back at it Uh, i'd probably have to rate it higher than that but uh Brent Hart, I think, over the years has always said that this wasn't their best match, that they had several matches that were better than this that weren't televised. They wrestled an awful lot. I actually always really, really liked their match they had at King of the Ring. Yes, yeah, so do I. I think it's right on par with this. Yeah, but uh, it's an iconic match. I think watching it, just knowing what Perfect was going through, through too, um, just kind of adds to it. I think it makes it even a little better for me. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I guess when I think back to being a young kid in the early 90s, this is one of the matches that most stands out to me when I first saw it. Um, I was already a huge Bret Hart fan. I know Justin was a huge Bret Hart fan during that time period too. And uh, this was kind of the match that cemented him as my favorite wrestler, I would say. Justin? Yeah, 100% agree. Um, I wanted to do this SummerSlam because it was just, it hit the sweet spot for me as a wrestling fan. 91, early 92, you know, I was 10 and 11. It, this match, just like you, this, this was me going from being a fan of guys like Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior. You know, all it took for me to be a fan was just bigger than life characters, big muscles, and they win all the time. But then, like, this match was validation to a young me growing up as a wrestling fan because I, I saw him in the Heart Foundation, and it's like, I, I kind of started to see, like, wow, this guy's like, seems to be really good at this wrestling thing. And it, it was just, it was the first time I really recognized talent before the actual push. So when he won that Intercontinental title, I felt like I won that Intercontinental title, not only because I was a fan, obviously, you know, like he, you know, he looked cool, you know, the, the black and pink or whatever, but it, it was just a really cool moment for a young wrestling fan, Justin Joyne, who just, yeah, yeah grew, grew up with this product, right? Right in this pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I echo those sentiments. It, Thinking back to this match, Justin, it's no surprise we became such close friends when we met, <laughs> reflecting yeah, on this period yeah. of wrestling, because, yeah, I'm right there with you. This was there, uh, transitional just, for me. Yeah, there's just so much iconic stuff about this match. You know, like, to me, if we want to go to the Apex thing, I think this is Apex Mr. Perfect. Um, obviously, Apex Bret Hart is in the future, but this is the launching point for that. You know, Bret tearing a, apart his ring gear was just terrific and all the stuff at the end with his parents it just this was incredible what do you think kyle uh well emotionally i don't think i have nearly uh the feelings that you guys do towards this it's a great match i think what's unique about this uh particularly for the time period is that it was such a hot match despite the fact there was no program or build for this at all on television. This was not a feud going into SummerSlam. Perfect was feuding with Davy Boy uh, on TV. I actually still have the WWF magazine in my basement where he, you know, it, it was talking about Perfect and Davy. I remember watching the SummerSlam report when this was announced. I'm like, oh, that's odd. You know, Perfect and Brett have had no issue on television. I think other than like a couple of inset interviews, there was no interaction between the two. Um, and that's very rare for this time period of WWF and the fact that they were able to pull off what they did is certainly a mark in both guys favor. Yeah. Considering all that, because they're, they're literally, I mean, it was kind of correct. And the fact that Brett was as over as he was, I mean, he had just started his singles run after mania. Um, and this is obviously, you know, his first big singles win. Um, he didn't really have a feud going into this. He, Worked Ted DiBiase, Anna Saturday's main event, worked the Barbarian, but 
Um, it's a real testament to just uh, him as a performer, how into it, you know, how, how into him the crowd was. Do you recall just from your research or even from watching at the time how they got to Brett Perfect or how that was unveiled? They just announced it. Just they just announced, announced it. On, it? Uh, yeah, I mean, they used to, you know, on the weekend show, they'd have Gene Okerlund. He would announce the card, and he just said it's Mr. Perfect versus Bret Hart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and it was just they were not feuding at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking through uh, history of WWE right now. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I, I actually perused it, you know, this, this afternoon. I was like, God, was there an interaction? Was there, like, an angle or something? And there really was. They, they, they would cut promos on each other after the match was set up, but... There was no big angle. Yeah, it's. I'm just scrolling down through the year '91, and it's you got perfect working with like Piper for most of the first couple months of the year, Boss Man, Tito Santana, um, and then it looks. I'm around like April or so. He started working with Brett at house shows. Um, so perhaps some of those matches are the ones that Brett's talking about when he he says well, they, they had worked, better matches untelevised. But uh, yeah, well, they worked in they worked in '89 a lot mm-hmm. when Brett. Like Brett's aborted second singles push. Yeah. Um, so there was a. It's, this is kind of odd because this never really bothered me um, watching this as a kid. Um, but looking back at it with a different pair of eyes, it is. I think it's a valid criticism. But uh, yeah, it, it appears the referee, who, if I recall, was Hebner. Um, calls for the bell like really early when brett locks in the sharpshooter i don't think it ever really bothered me um as a kid because honestly this is one of the best sharpshooters brett hart ever put on in his career like he really cranks it back on him um but the ref is running a call for the bell like before he cranks it in (laughs) yeah no i i I thought the same thing because you know i remember i was a uh, constant buyer of the wwe magazine back then and it just i remember there's a photo of him really cranking in that sharpshooter and it's so iconic and then watching i was kind of jarred by i mean he had that thing in for like a second yeah max <laughs> before the the ref called for the bell yeah he like turns him over because as you guys all know perfect like drops the leg on the groin area goes for it a second time brett catches the leg turns him over wraps his arms around his legs and then starts cranking back on the sharpshooter it's slightly different than he would usually apply it where brett usually put the hold on with his left leg through the legs, but he does it like more like the scorpion death lock here, where his right legs between the legs and the way is he's got perfect legs cross is a little different than he would normally do it. But right as he, he crosses the legs and he gets up onto his own feet and he just starts leaning back referees call it for the bell. And then after well, the bell rings is when he really cranks it back. I mean, that could be a case of perfect's back. Like he probably, he may have told the ref, you know, I don't really want to be in this very long. Brett really didn't get that conversation because, yeah. man, he, he turns yeah. that back like harder than he typically would, I think. Um, I, mean, it, I mean, the quick submission kind of puts over the hold, I think. You know, this, yeah, that, was a, that was a Meltzer thing he wrote in the Observer. I, I saw that. And I you're right. As a kid, I didn't really notice that. Um, it is a quick when you know I read I was like, yeah, it is kind of a quick sub. But um, I didn't think it was a, a huge Deal. Yeah, here's the line so from the Observer. Uh, September 6, 1991 Observer. Uh, Meltzer writes, The match was slightly better than four stars, but after all those near falls, when it looked as though one was going to have to do something spectacular to win, the actual finish was ridiculous because the guy gave up the second the hold was on without even okay. pretending to struggle, which is the only negative thing about the match. I guess that's why I gave it four instead of like a four and a half. 
Yeah, I'm going to go after Meltzer a little bit with that that comment, just because it's from him and, and knowing some ratings that he has for other matches. So the Shawn Michaels-Kurt Angle match from WrestleMania, right? Yeah. Um, he gave that four and three quarters. Okay. If you criticize this for being, like, too quick of a sub, what about how ridiculously long Shawn Michaels is in that ankle lock for that mm-hmm. match? Yeah. Why is that not correct? Like, I mean, it's preposterous. He's like in it for like a fucking hour before he taps out. So like, to me, it works both ways. And I just, eh, I just don't think Dave's applying that fairly, quite frankly. <laughs> um, speaking of applying something correctly, we did have Lord Alfred Hayes on the show. And, yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah. I, I left when Justin mentioned Brett's parents and how great it was. I was oh, like, yeah. yeah, especially when Lord Al pulled that mic away in two seconds. You talk about a quick sub. Lord <laughs> Alfred, what was quicker, the, the ref calling for the bell or Lord Alfred Hayes calling? I'll throw it back to you, Gino. <laughs> well, what I was going to say is Lord Alfred Hayes, who is also well known for uh, exposing himself backstage around this time period if i do recall reading that once or twice um when he wasn't exposing himself backstage he was doing interviews with wrestlers families <laughs> out in the arena and uh yeah he's he's there with Stu and helen right by the entrance way and he's like excuse me mr hart can i get a get a comment and he's like really he like hanging on his arm and brett comes up and gives his mom a hug and Stu starts to talk and he immediately pulls the microphone away from him <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, all right, just completely ends. It's a really bizarre, go back and watch it if you haven't seen it. Maybe I'll pull the audio for the podcast here, but uh, it's a very bizarre interaction between Stu Hart and Lord Alfred Hayes. We've got ourselves a new World Wrestling Federation Intercontinental Champ. Hey, let's go to Alfred. Thank you, Gorilla. I'm standing here with Stu Hart, who's the father of the newly crowned champion. Here's absolutely a god excitement. Excuse me, Mr. Hart. Could I have a word with you? Well, here is the champion himself being hugged by his father. This is a highly emotional scene. Look at Stu Hart. He's punched me to the skin. So, uh... I, I was just listening um, uh, to a different podcast. They, were, so they had the famous... Jerry Lawler in the stands at the Manhattan Center with Stu and Helen mm-hmm. in 93. Yeah. Uh, it may have been for the best that Lord Al pulled that mic away quick because uh, Stu Hart was not the rock. <laughs> Needless <true>. to say. <laughs> Unless he was down in the dungeon telling someone to have some discipline as he smacked the shit out of him. Yeah. As heard on Wrestling with Shadows. Um, as I scrolled back here on History of WWE, I, be- I believe I found the first match in 91 Bret and Perfect wrestled, which looks like it was in Providence, Rhode Island on April 26th in front of 6,000 fans. They didn't wrestle a lot, though, did they? Because I, like, I like looked through like uh, April it was mostly tw- Davy Boy that Perfect yeah, was working. Yeah, April 26th. Um, the next night in Rochester, New York, they worked. Um, the night after that in Orlando. Jesus, that is terrible. <laughs> So that is some crazy scheduling. They went from Providence, yeah. Rhode Island, Rochester, New York, to Orlando, Florida, where they wrestled That's, again. The routing was an issue. They did not get that tour stuff figured out till years later. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, then in early May, he goes to work in Davy Boy. So they had Bretton Perfect had like three matches there at the end of April. Um, and I'm not, as I scroll, I'm not seeing any other matches between Brett and Perfect, at least in the spring. So, yeah, they, they probably worked for sure a lot more in, in 89 than they did here. So, yeah, Davey Boy match- all through May. 
Go ahead. Yeah, the, there's some good. You can find the stuff that those '89 matches on YouTube pretty easily. The there's one from Wheeling, West Virginia that uh, I think is the, is the best of the lot. I think not as good as not as good as this one or the King of the Ring match, but it's pretty good. I think yeah, I think there's one where it might be on Brett's DVD set actually. I think there's an 89 match. There's somewhere I know they've officially released one. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I I think it was on the um the first Brett one with the documentary. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I think it was like Toronto. I, that, that was a Toronto one. I think from earlier in the year, if I remember correctly. Yeah. <laughs> I could be mistaken though. Yeah, Perfect's working Kerry Von Erich and uh, Bulldog throughout uh, throughout May. It looks like from from scrolling down on the page. Yeah. So and then... yeah, my my WWF magazine says, "Is the Bulldog better than Perfection?" <laughs> <laughs> kayfabe article yeah yeah and they're working into june too so all right so that's... Make, no mistake, make no mistake about it brett was the better option though in this spot to take the title from perfect oh yeah no question no question about it so um any closing comments there Justin? anything else you notice watching that match back uh, yeah j- just a a few things real quick uh you know like dolph ziggler is always being compared to Shawn michaels but the way he bumps, like watching perfect in this match is like, oh, well, that that's that's where Dolph Ziggler gets all of his stuff. I mean, uh, Mr. Perfect is the bumping machine. He, he's just the absolute best the way he flails around. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I actually popped. I've seen this match. I don't know how many times, but I once again popped when Brett kicked out of the perfect plex. Just an amazing moment. Mm hmm. And you guys asked me about commentary earlier when Bobby the Brain talks or he hit a man with glasses. That's the only commentary I can remember from the entire event. That's insane. The coach was not a strong gimmick, by the way. It was just basically, um, you know, Heenan wanted off the road. Perfect was leaving soon. It was just kind of a way to get from here to there i think for a couple months i know they put him with the beverly brothers too but that didn't go anywhere so yeah i'm just scrolling down these matches and i cannot find perfect brett anywhere in the summer i'm of telling you just I, I, I found to me. no i found i found where they announced the match was on a july 13th television yeah. show is where it was yeah officially there was announced. no there was no feud these they just did not there was no feud whatsoever between those two yeah, no, he's working Davy Boy all through July, and yes. yeah, it's crazy. Now you think today when when they're prepping for a pay per view match, they're, they're going to work house shows over and over again, you know, to kind of get ready for their match. And uh, nope, don't see anything. Uh, looks like Brett wrestled. Yeah, this is on TV. He wrestled a match kind of against guy Bob Bradley, <laughs> just a squash match where uh, there was a. During the match, there was like a perfect and uh, coach like cutaway segment. Uh, looks like that was on August 24th. It aired August 24th, so right before SummerSlam. But uh, yeah, they're probably going back after they decided the match and you know inserting all that well after the TV tapings. So uh, yeah, interesting that that match kind of came out of nowhere, becomes one of the greatest WWF matches of the early 90s. I think no question about it. So um, so following Brett Perfect and Brett's. First singles title win there. We've got the Natural Disasters, Earthquake and Typhoon, with Jimmy Hart uh, taking on the Bushwhackers. So as far as Justin's uh, evaluation here goes, Apex in front of them or behind them? I don't think there's anyone in this match who had their Apex in front of them. Would you guys disagree? 
No, totally agree. <laughs> I don't. Sadly. I don't know if Fred Ottman ever had an apex or what that would be. <laughs> Aww. Yeah, I think uh, well, the Bushwhackers obviously was years and years before this. Uh, as far as John Tenta goes, Earthquake the year before with the Hogan feud. So yeah. now this is a six-minute match. Um, <laughs> not not much to talk about here. We've uh, we've got the natural disasters kind of setting their. I guess setting their eyes on the Legion of Doom for the the feud after LOD <laughs> yeah, wins the title later on. Yeah, this was very much done to establish them as the number one contenders for the fall. But th- th- there was actually, unlike the last match, ironically enough, like a lot of there there was an angle for this. I mean, you had the you know typhoon, uh, you know their tugboat going to typhoon, the heel turn that was done when he teamed up with the Bushwhackers. Yeah. So there was a story there, and then there was like the Andre the Giant thing. Where um, you know earthquake had attacked him, and this wound up being Andre's last appearance on pay per view. Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting looking back because they really telegraphed the title change since uh, LOD comes out in this match. Well, yeah, you know that that was one of a couple matches here where the end result was pretty much a formality, the main event included. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think we really need to spend much time. <laughs> I don't have a whole lot to say about this match. He- Heenan has a great line. In here, when Piper goes, uh, Bobby, if you were the manager of the Bushwhackers, what's the first thing you would do? And Heenan replies, if I was the manager of the Bushwhackers, the first thing I would do is commit suicide. (laughs) (laughs) That is just, that is the highlight of this match. So, I mean, you know, I mean, as much as we want to bag on this, looking at it, it does effectively set up the natural disasters as in that contenders role. Although, you know, I, I wasn't a huge fan of the natural disasters. They're as heels. They were a lot better than that. Just like that, pardon the pun, disasters babyface run they had in '92. They were not a good babyface team whatsoever. And it's kind of sad seeing Andre out there at this point. Yeah, yeah, I had the same thought too. That that was my big takeaway, is especially with that doc just coming out and uh, I had it on. My wife was sitting here watching. She's like. Oh, this is right before he died, wasn't it? Just just from watching the interactions, like yeah, 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 it's not great. Not his last TV appearance, though. That would come the following year on a Clash of the Champions in the Bill Watts era. That's WCW. so bizarre. Going back and no seeing shit. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did they what show that in the documentary? Champions? I can't. I can't remember, but I remember at least looking it up on uh, YouTube or something a few months back. Uh, what yeah, what show is that? It's uh Flash twenty. Flash twenty. Yeah. It's yeah, it's it's totally bizarre seeing him in WCW. I think I think the documentary hit on that a little bit because they talked about kind of his falling out with WWF and he was done, but he didn't think he was done kind of thing. Bruno was on that show too. Yeah. Man, that's crazy. So yeah, if you haven't seen it, uh Andre comes out, he's he's got like two canes on each arm. In pretty bad shape. So, uh, on our next match, okay, guys, Virgil, who we saw in New Orleans, <laughs> independent show. Kyle, did you drink some beers with Virgil that night? Did you take some pictures with him or something? Absolutely not. I steer clear of Virgil every time I see him coming. Uh, I could have swore you went over there with like a handful of beers or something after we had left. Cause oh, I had a handful of beers, and he was, you know, sliming his way around. But make no mistake about it, I didn't give him one. <laughs> because <laughs> we were at the yeah that's that's the night we went to mercury rising 
and then you stayed for the Janela show. And Virgil was over there, like in the far corner, with his table set up, like all night long. So as far they as they told him to leave the ring at one point in that show, by the way. Oh, man. when he got in. <laughs> so, so as far as if Virgil was at his apex or after it, I think this is his apex. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, of the, of the Justin Joint gimmick here, I don't think anyone more clearly is at their apex than Virgil here. <laughs> yeah. And I'd have to say DiBiase's after his apex, but man, he was still really good at this point. Like DiBiase's playing up the gimmick just as good as in 1980, 87, 88, I think. Um, really good in the ring. Sells like crazy for Virgil when Virgil hits all of his high intensity offense. And uh, Sherry gets banned from ringside, which kind of plays into the finish a little bit when uh, the match gets restarted and Virgil eventually wins the million dollar championship. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty good match. What do you guys think? Yeah, uh, young Justin was super invested in this match because of the uh, the atrocities of the million dollar man Ted DiBiase. But uh, I, I I was stoked, and this actually this whole pay per view is just the pay per view of babyface wins. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for but, sure. Yeah, it was great, man. Uh, Obviously, the apex of Million Dollar Man probably would have been WrestleMania four, perhaps. Yeah, yeah for, uh, that's what I would think. Yeah. So, Kyle, any closing thoughts here on Virgil and DiBiase? Uh, Virgil was over here, man. It was the right call. Uh, Piper on commentary, I think, added to the match. He was, you know, he had kind of taken Virgil under his wing. Was the storyline. So, you know, him, you know, being. Uh, in the booth really helped. Bobby Heenan had a few unfortunate racist remarks about Virgil during this match that were are better left unsaid. Something about uh, a boombox, if I remember. Yes, that. that's yeah. You can't, you can't go with boombox, Smack <laughs> Bob. Come on, even in '91, that was bad. Um, you know something? When I think of this feud, you know, in like a modern equivalent, do you know what I think of is that Damian Mizdow character and the Miz. Mm-hmm. Remember when everyone was like so up in arms about, you know, WWE with, oh, what lost opportunities with, you know, Damian Mizdow being released. Damian Mizdow was essentially Virgil in this feud in the sense that, okay, when he he beats the heel. And that's the right call, but then what? And that's kind of what happened with Virgil. This is a like this is the second best match on the show behind Brett perfect but it's like after Virgil wins here it was very much and then what you know I think he loses the million dollar title back to DiBiase um and then he just kind of becomes a jobber to the stars and I don't think anyone weeps for that yeah you know what that, that was such a good point I might call off our last man standing match <laughs> sanity still stinks pal and it's back on <laughs> oh god all right so, yeah, I think as a kid, I really, really was into Virgil here. So, uh, yeah, this is definitely prime Virgil if, if such a thing exists. If if people want to understand how over Virgil was, um, he, first, he gets a huge pop here. But um, when he turns at the Royal Rumble, that is one of the most insane pops, not just of the era, but like in WWE history. Yeah. When DiBiase's like, put the belt on me. Do you remember about your, do I have to remind you about your mother? I mean, it's pretty heavy heat stuff. 
and Virgil just decks him with the middle. I mean, the crowd goes batshit for that, man. I mean, this was, and you know, this is like eight months later. Well, you know, it's great. You know, Virgil, the former bodyguard, wins DiBiase's prize possession. It's great storytelling. So could this storyline ever happen today? Or is it just too overtly racist? I mean, Virgil, the character, was pretty racist. To be yeah. Um, I mean, we, we talked about it. I mean, like, Ms. Ms. Dow was kind of a modernized version of it. Yeah, true. But just because of the, the racial implications of DiBiase's African-American manservant. Yeah, and, and the thing that made this work a lot better than Ms. and Ms. Dow is that you're talking about, like, they this act had been together for years. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they came in late 87, and now we're talking 91. So, you know, although it was pretty telegraphed once they started teasing the tension between the two that Virgil was going to turn babyface, you know, people could kind of, I, I think, as fans, appreciate, you know, all the kind of, you know, uh, shit Virgil had taken from DiBiase through the years. And, you know, made him more likable. And having Piper did help, uh, believe it or not. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, I, I'd agree. Second best match as far as in-ring easily on this show. Um, Sherry Martell, by the way, does not get nearly enough credit. Oh, yeah. I had, that, I had that she thought watching this back, too. She is so match. good. Yes. So, so good. Um, yeah. Perfect. She's she's a perfect fit for pretty much anyone because no matter who who she's put with, she does her job phenomenally. She was great with Michaels not long after this, and uh, yeah, Savage, obviously. What's that? Savage before this. Yeah, and Savage before this. So, all right, the Jailhouse match, the Big uh, Boss yeah. Man, and the Mountie. So this is the match. I just sent you guys a picture on your phones if you want to check it out. I just, while we were talking about that, I loaded up the show on the WWE Network and took a snapshot. Um, after Bossman wins this match, um, and he's he's hauling the Mountie backstage through the hallways of MSG, they pass a locker room, like, really briefly. It's like a split second, and you can kind of see in there. And as it goes live, it looks like Sean's sitting there. I'm not sure that it is now that I've taken the screenshot. But it's clearly Jerry Sag sitting next to him, and then it looks almost like Shawn Michaels sitting there. But they're clearly kind of watching a monitor as Bossman's hauling Mountie past this slightly open doorway into the locker room where the guys are watching the show. So I, I couldn't tell live. You can probably that see from like, that picture. That looks like Shawn Michaels in this picture. Yeah. It does look like a lot like him. Like you said, he he was kind of gone at this period, but he could have been at the show. Uh, it wasn't really working. He was injured. But uh, it, it looks a lot like him sitting next to Jerry Sags in the background. So there's an Easter egg for you. If you check it out, you have to, you'd have to pause really quickly. But as Rez are heading down after the match through the locker room, they pass an open doorway. And you can see some of the wrestlers watching the show. So this is kind of like the start of a story that goes on throughout the rest of the show where the Mountie is taken <laughs> to a New York, really run down New York City jail, which... I got to say, though, like one of the things I really liked about this match is you actually like see outside of the arena afterwards. And it kind of takes you back to the early 90s where you see the old cars and, you know, just like what the city looked like in 1991, which is kind of cool. But uh, not much of a match. A little over nine minutes long. Bossman wins the match. The Mountie goes. He gets fingerprinted. 
all these segments they keep going back to him throughout the show where he's screaming in jail he's he's not he's not doing what the uh new york city's finest are requesting for him to do and uh yeah it pretty much goes on for the for the rest of the show so any deep thoughts on the big boss man versus the mounty fellas kyle i thought the mounty stuff is like you know you know obviously the highlights of this show are perfect brett and then the closing angle um after the wedding I think this Maori stuff is really entertaining and is like right there, like below those two things among the best stuff on the show. I mean, it's, it's really memorable. Um, there's again, some stuff that has not aged well, you know, the guy coming on to him in the jail cell towards the end of the show is not something you would put on television in 2018, but uh, Jacques Rougeau was very, very good in this role. And the match itself really was kind of just shockingly one-sided we're talking about apexes here i think you could make an argument this is pretty close to the big boss man's apex at least in the ring i mean he was in good shape here um you know and and super over yeah Yeah, i agree like he i was really taken aback by how relatively speaking how skinny he was in this match i mean he, he was not very large so I would agree. This is I, an argument could be made for against nails the following year, but I, I would think this this would be. All right, I would I would say Hogan. Yeah, right? eighty nine. Yeah, yeah. That that feud was. I mean, he, that drew well, um, and they had good matches too. But um, yeah, I think in terms of an all around performer, you know, the babyface run was you know, initially, like, you know, going back earlier in the year when he was working perfect at Mania and beating up the Heenan, going through the Heenan family. Um, 91 is probably the boss man's best overall year. Yeah, I'd I'd say ring work-wise, 91. Drawing power-wise, though, probably 89 when he was working across from, from Hogan. So, yeah, it, it's entertaining. I It's funny you guys should mention, like, the, how entertaining those segments were because I remember... One of my good friends I met in high school, and uh, one of our favorite things to do was like in study hall to talk about old school wrestling. And we had just met, so we were going through like all of our childhood memories. And anytime we talked about SummerSlam '91, outside of Brett Perfect, it was talking about those segments with the Mountie and how they were hilarious. So it is a memorable part of the show. The match itself isn't too much to speak of, but uh, yeah, those segments have gone down, and anyone that was watching wrestling at the time <laughs> remembers watching them. So. And it was a very logical feud, too, with the two law enforcement officers. You know, once the Mountie character was introduced early in the year, you kind of, like, figure, like, even as a kid, okay, he's probably going to feud with the big boss man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So after that, we've got the Road Warriors Legion of Doom, and uh, they're winning the WWF tag team titles for well, the first time here. We should mention something, because doesn't the uh, Bobby Heenan gold belt segment air oh yeah so that's where this was right before this yeah yes. yes so flair's on his way to wwf he has not debuted yet um i believe was his debut in september i think it's the first week of september on primetime wrestling is his first tv appearance right. if i remember correct but heenan's carrying around the belt here um mm-hmm. which is pretty cool and so they're already alluding to flair coming in which is, again, if you're watching wrestling in 1991, was one of those moments that you didn't think you were going to see Ric Flair in the WWF. Probably shouldn't have seen it if WCW wasn't so spectacularly inept at the time to let Flair go to WWF over this 
uh, conflict they had over the title belt and everything. So Flair shows up in the fall, and uh, but they're they're building that up here just a few weeks prior to his actual arrival. So uh, that's also a memorable part. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out of SummerSlam yeah. '91. And and Heenan had brought the belt out on TV before this. Like the big thing here was he was going to confront Hulk Hogan who wasn't shown. So I'm not sure if it was even Hulk Hogan in the segment. It was Bobby Heenan goes to the locker room during an intermission filled with it, uh, interview segments there. And, um, you know, Heenan goes, I'd like to challenge you on behalf of the real world champion, Ric Flair and the door shuts in his face. Uh, but yeah, this, this was a big deal. Even if it wasn't, you know, it, there's an argument. Meltzer is one of the, guys who really makes it that this was not done as well as it could um, have been over the weeks and months that Flair, you know, wasn't treated um, as as big a deal as he should have been um, as an out. They, they, you know, they had him teaming up with guys and so they, they just had him as just another guy, in other words, by Survivor Series, as opposed to an outsider. Um, and they never did the match. At least on TV, they did it at the house shows, but yeah. they never did it on TV. Yeah, that w- that would actually be a really good topic <laughs> for a future classic show. It's just Flair um, versus Hogan. We could just talk about their entire feud and what happened in WWF, what didn't happen in WWF, yeah. and then at WCW. But uh, yeah. it kind of it, it, it's funny that it was viewed as this disappointment at the box office mm-hmm. uh, in the fall of '91 and. You know, they they went to Hogan Sid, obviously, for Mania. And also the, the issue was Hogan was leaving, too. So they could not have Hulk Hogan beat Ric Flair at WrestleMania. People, that's something people need to remember about, you know, when they talk about, why didn't they do Hogan Flair at WrestleMania? Well, it's because Hulk Hogan could not win, you know, could not beat Ric Flair. Um, yeah. In that spot to win the title because he was leaving. I mean, they, they essentially felt like they'd done the match all over the country in most of the biggest markets, if I remember right. And, the, yeah, there was the question of drawing power, but also that, like, everyone had already seen it. Yeah. So, um, and they, well, they did briefly announce Hogan Flair. Yes. At the yes. press conference it's, for WrestleMania. Yes, setting up the Sid turn. Yes. Yeah. So we'll get to Sid coming in here in a little bit, but sh- it should be noted that this is Heenan actually carrying around the real WCW world title at the time this was before the lawsuit and when they started using the wwf tag team title that they blurred on television this is this is the real deal this is the big gold belt that he's shown carrying around so uh yeah i know that i know for me as a kid seeing that belt come up on the wwf television was pretty crazy justin any memories of that i i completely missed that (laughs) completely missed it yeah it was it was crazy so um, they're already setting that up here and, and the dream match that people didn't think they'd ever see Hogan and Hogan and flair. And many people didn't see it unless you lived in one of those markets where they, uh, where they, you did the live shows, at least until bash at the beach when Hogan came in in WCW. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny. And then, you know, WWF considered it disappointing. And then, you know, three years later, WCW does it and it kind of turns everything around. Yeah. So Legion of doom here becomes the first tag team to win the NWA, AWA, and WWF tag team title belts with their victory and over only. the Nasty Boys. And the only. The only <laughs> seeing team as the, a- seeing as the AWA folded. had been folded, yeah. Yeah, so not going to happen anymore. And, uh, yeah, so this kind of cemented them as as arguably the most decorated tag team of the 80s and early 90s. 
Uh, super over response here from the crowd in New York, as expected. Um, Jimmy Hart's out there yet again in the show to manage the Nasty Boys. Uh, the helmet that he wore gets played into the finish here before I think Sags took the Doomsday device for the for the victory for LOD. And so, while the match isn't much to speak of, it's 7 minutes and 45 seconds, it is kind of a pivotal moment for LOD to get the WWF Tag Team titles because they had been so associated with NWA, uh, AWA of course, but then NWA into WCW. But them coming over to the WWF and winning the top prize was, was kind of a huge moment because if you if you grew up in the 80s, they were like a huge symbol of the rival company. So, uh, Kyle, thoughts? Yeah, it's kind of crazy. We just talked about Ric Flair, LOD, and then a little bit from now we're going to talk about Sid. A lot of the big names migrating uh, up north there. Um, the result here was an obvious formality. Like, I'm 11 years old. And there was not a doubt in my mind LOD was going over here. <laughs> like, and it wasn't like one of those things like, oh, they, they're going to win because they would never let the little doomers down. It was like, come on, who the fuck thinks the nasty boys are going to win this match? Uh, something else, too. This is a no DQ, no countout match, and it is incredibly weak for that stiff. Other than the helmet, <laughs> I don't think there's anything that plays into a no DQ, no countout. I mean, this, uh, it would be borderline offensive to even like put this in the same category as the brawls the nasty boys had in wcw yeah for sure they, they were such a weird signing too for vince um i don't know if you guys know that story like the year before they had a kick-ass match with the steiners at halloween havoc but wcw being wcw did not have them under a long-term deal so vince signs them because he can and I guess he kind of, because he did that, felt justified, like he felt he had to justify that by putting the tag titles on them. Because, you know, earlier I mentioned Power and Glory. You know, the Rockers were the best team in the company at that time, I thought. Never got a shot with the titles. So, like, the Nasties to me just kind of felt like, I don't know. Like, they didn't really deserve, they, they weren't over enough, I don't think, at any point to really justify getting the titles. I think it was just a deal that Vince signed them and felt that he had to do it and you know there was just no argument to keep the belts on him at this point and you know lod was very over so yeah um go to that it's it's pretty crazy thinking back we were mentioning Shawn michaels a second ago on the rockers that they did that title change at the tv taping but the ropes broke against the heart foundation mm -hmm. and then so they couldn't they couldn't air that on tv and then like they had made the decision to put the belts on them and then they just never did. Like, why did they go yeah. back and do it anyways? <laughs> like, at a well, different I, taping. Well, it kind of coincided I, with them bringing the Nasty Boys in. I think Vince just changed his mind, and he didn't fire Jim Neidhart. And they're just like, all right, we'll just keep it on the hearts, and they'll lose the Nasty Boys at WrestleMania. Yeah. Is what it was. So, yeah, the, the tag team picture was very – this was kind of like – not quite the end, but very close to the end of, like, the golden – era of like wf tag teams because by 92 it was pretty sparse yeah i think we mentioned brett's first dvd set i think that match might be on that set which has a lot of good rare matches but uh either on that or the sean one i can't yeah remember. it's on one of them but uh the title change yeah that didn't air the top rope breaks in the match so the rockers beat the heart foundation for the titles they celebrate and everything but then the match never airs so it's not recognized so they never won the wwf tag team titles as far as the record books go 
that, that was like one of those things that if you read like the PWI almanacs, you thought you were like really cool for knowing <laughs> in the nineties. Oh, did, did you know the rockers like won this match and like they were the tag team champions, but like it never like was recognized. Yeah. <laughs> I think that might've been where I actually heard that the first time too. Funny enough that you say that. Yeah. Like one of those trivia notes, you felt like you knew more than all your friends. Yeah. So, um, LOD with the titles, we've got, <laughs> this is really funny here. So in the observer, and I, it kind of jives with what we said in our text thread the other night, guys, um, we've got Greg, the human intermission Valentine, as Dave Meltzer put it in the observer 91, taking I on IRS, probably I'd say the worst match in this card. You guys can Yep. Seven minutes, which seven minutes and seven seconds, which is probably about seven minutes and four seconds too long. Um, IRS beats Greg Valentine with the inside cradle in a singles match that is not much to speak of, and it's just kind of killing time before we get to the main event. Any thoughts that anyone wants to throw out before we get to Hogan and a Warrior? Uh, this match is so inconsequential to me that I skipped it, and I want to go in reverse because I, I just have a couple things to go back to LOD on one when they got into the ring and they threw their shoulder pads and it just stuck into the ring mat. I don't know if any of you guys noticed that. I did not. I have to go back and look at that. And, uh, apex LOD and nasty boys. Completely forgot that I am failing as a host tonight. Just completely failing. Um, I'd say LOD is after their apex. I'd have to go to the 80s for sure. Okay. Yeah. What do you think, Justin? Um, for me personally, as a fan, this was the apex because I didn't, I, I did not watch any of their previous stuff. Um, nasty boys. I would definitely say like 91 in general is their, their apex. Yeah, I'd say I'd say the Nasty Boys are for me would be slightly after their apex here, but this is around the time when they probably hit it for sure. Um, as far as LOD goes, I didn't, I wasn't old enough to really to really see what they did in the '80s, so I'm I'm just judging by going back and seeing it years later that I would uh, I'd have to rate the '80s though in NWA as their apex. Kyle, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, when, if, <laughs> if you see them come out one time to Iron Man. Yeah. In Crockett. I mean, yeah. it's just like, I, I, I'll be honest, like, I hate their WWF run, to be honest with you. As a kid, I, I, I love the WWF run. And, like, if you ask me this now, I'd be like, oh, they're at, if you asked me in 91 or 92, I'd be like, oh, yeah, they're at their best ever for sure. Like, I had heard of LOD, but I hadn't seen them much because, like I said, I wasn't old enough before that. But going back, yeah, with, with hindsight and having seen the 80s footage now, oh, man, yeah, the, the 80s was when LOD was at their height for sure. And then, for the Nasty Boys, to me, their height was the feud with Cactus and the Partners in '94 in WCW. The, the, they're another team too that just was way better in WCW mm-hmm. uh, than WWF. Um, you know, I mentioned that Steiner Brothers match. That's a definitely a recommendation for me that people should check out. Halloween Havoc '90 got him signed basically for this run from Vince, and then yeah, um, the Slamboree '94 match against Cactus Jack and. Kevin Sullivan is like one of my favorite matches ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going for them. I was saying Apex wise, probably right before they jumped to WWF. Although that 94 match, I've not seen in a long time. So I need to go back and watch that one again. So, all right. IRS and Valentine. What about the, the Apexes for them here? I, I, I think I'd have to say both are, 
are after their apex here. I think I'd have to go back to, uh, for IRS, probably the Varsity Club. I don't know. What would you guys say? Even, even Flor- his work in Florida, I guess. He's just a very bland singles. I, I, you know, or with Barry in the U.S. Express. Yeah. yeah. He's a very bland singles worker. And very. there's few things in life as bad as babyface Greg Valentine. <laughs> uh, I, I love Greg Valentine in the early 80s, like 83 to 86. But holy shit. Can I ask you a very, very cool. serious question, Kyle? Go would ahead. you rather watch singles IRS... <laughs> Or a Donald Trump rally? Oh, singles IRS. <laughs> <laughs> so there are things worse, but not many. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, God, it was just like abdominal stretch after abdominal stretch, it felt like in IRS singles matches. <laughs> He's you... another guy who had jumped from uh, WCW, by the way, within the previous year. He had the Michael Wall Street gimmick. Yes. And then he decided to be IRS. Mm-hmm. There you go. Uh, okay, Justin, you just sent me some. Is this a picture of the shoulder pads? Correct. <laughs> That's what I figured it was. I saw my phone flash, and wow. I saw it was Justin and Kyle throughout. I'm like, it's, this has to be something from the uh, L.O. Oh, my God. They are. They're completely upside down. Yeah. And that's crazy yeah. because, like, one of the big criticisms of L.O.D. Uh, in WWF was, like, you know, they kind of had, like, the cartoonish shoulder pads. You know, they had the rubber spikes. As opposed to, you know, they looked a lot more badass kind of in Crockett. But, yeah, it's kind of funny that they're just sticking there. Yeah. I don't know. Are, are they sticking in or did he just get it to flip upside <laughs> down and it's like and it's kind of like a ta- a coffee table? Like he just oh, threw no. a perfect. It sticks. It, it stays there. Yeah, I don't know. Are those actual steel spikes on those shoulder pads? Yeah, and I, on this show, I couldn't. I don't remember watching it, actually. I've heard they're made out of adamantium. Hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure I know what that is. <laughs> uh, okay, that's a nerdy X-Men reference. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's hard to tell from that picture, but that is pretty crazy because if they're not sticking, he threw it just perfectly for those shoulder pads to be right right there. This is at the 1 hour and 40 minute and 52 second timestamp. if you want to check out what we're talking about, SummerSlam 91. So... Yeah, <laughs> this IRS Valentine match is so inconsequential that we're going back and talking about LOD. So, <laughs> not, not much to talk about here. Uh, IRS wins the match. So, if there's anything you've been staying tuned for since Heart Perfect, it's definitely this main event situation where the Ultimate Warrior has this conflict with Vince McMahon around the time of this show, and. Uh, Basically got a pink slip right after the show, if I recall correctly. I know, Kyle, you yeah. went back and did some research on this. Um, I know that I'm going to go to you in a second here to get all the details, but I know the gist of it is he wanted more money. He wanted, like, the Hogan schedule. Uh, yeah. I believe he wanted better travel accommodations, and he kind of held up Vince for money on his WrestleMania payoff. Vince agreed. He works SummerSlam, thinks he's getting everything he asked for in his contract, and then right after the show, McMahon gave him a letter and basically fired him or, or put him on suspension, I should say. Um, because if he would have fired him, then he could have went right to WCW or pretty quickly went to WCW. So I think he was just suspended. Uh, but Kyle, you want to go ahead with that? Yeah, not seen again until WrestleMania 8. Um, yeah, you pretty much hit it. Um, you know, it, it's funny, the warrior here. The, the demands were, I'm always for the worker in these disputes, not the owner. But 
of the company. But in this case, the Warriors' demands were ridiculous, that he was kind of demanding a Hogan-type deal. He's clearly a second banana to Hogan in this match. He had just not long ago failed as the world champion, and there was certainly couldn't no rational mind would think that they should be going back to the Ultimate Warriors, the champion, anytime soon. Yeah. So those demands are kind of crazy, in my opinion. Um, I don't think his disappearance. So I looked at the TV too after this, and I'm trying to. If you white guys want to think back when you were a kid. It wasn't touched on on WWE TV. Like, after the show, he's just not mentioned anymore. And I'm trying to remember if I realized that or when I realized that. Like, maybe I realized it at, like, Survivor Series, you know, when they have everybody work the show. I'm like, okay, Ultimate Warrior's not on this show. But, and I definitely was, like, fired up when he returned at WrestleMania 8 as a kid. But, like, I'm trying to think when I realized, hey, what happened to the Ultimate Warrior? Because it's not like they went on TV the following week and said, the Ultimate Warrior is gone forever. They, they just didn't, they stopped talking about it. Mm-hmm. Didn't they, we talked about earlier about how Brett Perfect kind of came out of nowhere. Did this match kind of come out of nowhere with, with Warrior and Hogan teaming? Because Warrior had been setting up this feud, like everyone's seen the segments with like Jake Roberts. Yes. Uh, where he was supposedly training him to the dark side so he could go back and get the Undertaker who had locked him in the casket. And then, like, that wasn't really followed up upon because of Warrior's pink slip he got or suspension or whatever you want well, to yeah. call it. So, yeah, Warrior and Jake was supposed to be a fall feud. Yeah. Um, you know, they the official Jake turn only happened a couple weeks before this show. Um, and I've got some kind of thoughts on that uh, here in a minute. But... Um, yeah, that the warrior was when I said second banana, I mean, he was kind of a throw in here. You can make the argument. Well, he has the revenge for losing the title to slaughter at the Royal Rumble. So I guess it makes sense. And if Hogan needs a partner, the Warriors kind of a logical choice. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it it felt, I always thought what had, you know, because that under, I mean, again, we go back to our childhood things we remember, I mean, who doesn't remember the Warrior Taker casket angle? Oh, that was yeah. like they made the that was like the big post mania angle when that happened. I mean, they just replayed that thing to death as they should have, and it was kind of odd um, that that wasn't you know uh, they didn't do anything with that on the show. Now they they had worked body bag matches around the house show loop, obviously. Um, I always had this idea. And maybe, you know, I mentioned earlier, it was maybe a little late in the game to have Roberts in this match. But what if they had done for this match made in hell, Hogan Warrior against Slaughter, Roberts, and Taker? Like, that would have been, like, kind of a cool... And where Roberts and Taker are the only two men evil enough to team up with the turncoat. Because as we get into this match, one of the issues I have, again, like the LOD beating the Nasties, is the formality of it all. Um the Hogan slaughter thing was running on fumes by this point. And again, even as a 10, 11 year old kid, I'm sitting there. I'm like, there is a 0% chance the slaughter team wins here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think the fact that that golf war didn't last very long, <laughs> you know, unfortunately for WWF kind of hurt them because they went well, all in on, they went all in on that slaughters. Uh, storyline with that and then like it was the situation was pretty much over but they kept it going for months 
hurt in the sense that okay, the heat was like kind of molten during the when the war was actually going on. Like, or, you know, I, I believe on the Pritchard show, he said that they declared war. The U.S. declared war the night Slaughter beat Warrior for the title. Well, they didn't technically. If I'm going to be put on my historian, okay. well, cap, I mean, they didn't Bruce declare Pritchard war. Some, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Bruce Pritchard. So, okay, again, let's consider the source, but. You know, you're right. It just did. And the thing was, is Hogan had won the title from Slaughter already at Mania. They they ramped it up a little bit. They did the fireball angle backstage. They bring, you know, Colonel Mustafa, who all of a sudden, you know, the Iron Sheik all of a sudden now loves Iraq, which was odd. <laughs> and again, like the dragon, we've got to sit, you know, McMahon, I think there was like one acknowledgement. Okay, this man was previously Iron Sheik and the guy Hogan beat for his first WWF title. But it was just so odd to like, you know, the Iranian is now an Iraqi. It's kind of offensive. Yeah. And much like the whole Sergeant Slaughter angle, which I think we should talk about. You yeah. Know, to me, it's something that's actually undergone a bit of a, a positive critical reappraisal uh, in, in the last several years. I mean, Hogan and Slaughter have a kick-ass match at MSG in June. But it's a Desert Storm match. I recommend people check that out. But... To me, any good that came of this feud is canceled out by the negative press that WWF got from exploiting a war. Mm-hmm. I, I just think I get that they needed new heels at the end of 1990. They tried getting Ric Flair then. He didn't jump. But mm, exploiting a real life war is not a good idea. And, and it left a, a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. Yeah. I, I got to point out here because I looked up the date of Rumble. Pritchard is slightly wrong because the rumble happened on January 19th. And uh, I know when the Iraq war started for the U S because it was my birthday, January 17th. So two days earlier. So it's two days after the U S started the war with Iraq. Imagine that. Imagine that Bruce Pritchard telling a story to make his side look better. (laughs) I'm stunned. Yeah. It's two days, two days after the U S started the war with Iraq that the rumble aired with all of that. Um, You know, I got to tell you as a kid, I didn't really get who this general Adnan was. (laughs) <laughs> and it's pretty interesting. So I guess he actually went to school with Saddam Hussein. Yes. And uh, so he, he actually does have the real Iraqi connection there. And uh, they call him the Iraqi Sheik. Uh, had been a wrestler for a long, long time. And uh, yeah, an actual <laughs> an actual uh, acquaintance of the American enemy, Saddam Hussein. So uh, that, that I thought was interesting. I didn't really know that until I started doing research for this show. So... Yeah, as as the story goes, earlier in the year they were supposedly, was well, as, as McMahon and WWF or WWE claims at the time. Now um, they had to cancel WrestleMania being at the Coliseum in Los Angeles because of security threats. When in fact, I think most people believe the real reason is the advanced ticket sales were very low, and so they moved to the smaller Sports Coliseum in Los Angeles where they had WrestleMania, and that was. That was like the war was still fresh. It was actually the war was like just ending, if I remember right, around the time of Mania 7 uh, with, with Slaughter and Hogan. But yeah, here we are five months later, and they're still they're still doing that. And like Kyle mentioned, they had a good match, Hogan and Slaughter, in June. Uh, but the Iraq-USA situation at this point was uh, not really front-page news anymore. Yeah, the feud was running. This was just a blow-off, obviously, before Ric Flair comes in. Yeah. So... Um... You know, I, I don't I don't know it, it, the I think they knew it, too. 
that this was running on fumes because the whole thing with Sid Justice coming in as the special ref was probably the most intriguing element. They tried, oh, is he going to favor either side? You know, what does justice will be served mean? You know, that's always kind of a a trope for, okay, we know the feud itself is kind of dying down. We need to kind of bring in something else to juice it up. Yeah. No, I thought, uh, I did think, though, you know, looking back, and as a kid, I definitely felt like if you're going to put together an all-star team for the main event, you couldn't do any bigger than Warrior Hogan at the time. And uh, the promotional shots they, they took of Warrior and, like, the American flag face paint with Hogan dressed up like a soldier were pretty cool. Not to, not to buy too much into the propaganda, but <laughs> those, are, those are pretty cool photos uh, hyping up the sh- I think, if I remember right... That shot's like on the back of the Coliseum video, which I have somewhere in my storage. I can't remember. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's on the back of the Coliseum video. But uh, Warriors out there not knowing he's about to get a letter from Vince McMahon dated the very same day of August of 1991 that he's getting his pink slip. So uh, this was uh, yeah. his hurrah until WrestleMania 8 the following spring. Yeah. Hogan, by the way, in the pre-match promo, continuously leaves Warrior hanging on fist bumps. <laughs> That promo, I did write that down too. Watching it, what an awkward promo! If you watch, did, did uh, Hogan know? <laughs> did, did, that, that's what I took away from it. Like the you know leaving him hanging. Like I think Hogan knew what was going to happen. Yeah. If you if you watch, uh, I mean, everyone knows that the Warriors promos were usually nonsense and didn't make a damn bit of sense. But if you watch Gene Okerlund's face in that promo, it's freaking hilarious. <laughs> I just like I just I'm watching him because you can see him in the frame like the whole time the Warriors yelling out all his nonsense and he's just giving him like the funniest look in the world like what the hell is this guy talking about and then at the end Warrior and Hogan get like face to face as they're they're hyping up for the match and the whole thing is just super awkward but uh, I I guess I can see how little kids at the time like us thought it was cool so yeah it's it's the obvious blow off situation and. Uh, I did think the the ending was a little weird. Like, why did Hogan need to use the the powder slash salt? Yeah, well, t- typical cheating baby face Hulk Hogan from <laughs> yeah, that time seriously. period. I mean, I mean yeah. <laughs> yeah, what, what did you think of this match, Justin? Uh, yeah, that, my big takeaway was the uh, Hogan having to cheat to win for some reason. Yeah, it makes no sense. Like, I went back and watched because I hadn't seen this match in years, just like you guys, and this was like the one – that I really had to rewatch. And like I watch and it happens so fast because it's like right after Warrior chases off the other guys to the back. And then it's like Hogan and Slaughter out there. And then all of a sudden, like they go from Warrior running up the aisle back to Hogan and he just throws the powder at him. Like, what the hell did he do that for? I, I don't I don't know. I don't get it. I mean it, it it's in line with his entire character throughout his entire career. Is he was always doing that kind of shit. I mean shocking racist ass fucking Hulk Hogan is a heel. <laughs> well, that's a, that's actually an interesting segue. Cause we mentioned Sid here and as they go into the Sid Hogan feud at the rumble and then going into WrestleMania, the crowds were cheering Sid, not Hogan. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and that was, that's all, that was another one of those cool things that um, you could know back then before the internet, when, they edited the reaction at the end of the rumble heavily when, you know, when Sid tosses Hogan, the crowd cheers pretty wildly. And after when they face off, the crowd is audibly chanting for Sid. And that is uh, edited on WWE 
TV on subsequent showings. Yeah, and on the Coliseum video itself, it's edited. So you'd have to get like the pay-per-view broadcast tape, which you could get back in the tape trading days to to see the full reactions it was uh, getting. The the network now it's it's the original. If you watch it on the network, it's the original. It's not edited anymore. No, it's not edited. No. Yeah. I I think it was it was so it was edited on a um not on the actual because I had it like dubbed. It wasn't the actual Rumble '92 where they changed it. I had the whatever the freaking hideous one with Sean Mooney and Lord Alfred Hayes doing the Star Trek theme. Oh, Invasion '92. Yes. Yep. So they show it then, and it's like ridiculously edited on that video. Yeah. I think that's when like when they're talking about Coliseum video it being edited. I think it, I think they're referring to that because um, I had the old Coliseum video dubbed, and it was very clearly people cheering for Sid. Yeah, so people are clearly, t- you know, it's been, what, almost eight years since Hogan beat the Iron Sheik in 84. So, yeah, they they were tiring of the Hogan babyface run. And plus, again, the, the tactics Hogan was using to win were a little odd for a babyface. And this is probably when the turn should have happened that happened in 1996 if he was going to stay around the WWF. But, yeah, the fans were really hot for Sid at the time. As they start feuding. So this this whole situation with Sid being the special referee in this match. And his uh, brand new entrance music upon his arrival to the WWF. Probably composed by Jimmy Hart. Uh, which Kyle you mentioned earlier today. That when we were getting ready for the oh, show. We better be God, working out listening to that theme up. song. <laughs> yeah, make, make, make sure you know this part of the podcast to play that uh, music. 100% will play it in the background yes. right now. Yeah, so Sid comes out, crowd loves him. How could you not like how could you not like the guy at the time? Just, we didn't know really any of the backstage stories about him at the time. Just this is a big jacked up dude. Well, a lot of those had happened. I mean, he was kind of a head case, yeah. but no more of a head case than, you know, a lot of other guys in the industry at this time. I and mean, this was before the scissors stuff uh had happened, so um yeah, Sid was another guy. You know, again, like Flair, even if you didn't watch WCW, you knew who Sid Vicious was yeah. and that he was a big deal. And they did a great job making him a big deal. Like every week on the TV uh, they, shows, they would have, you know, a baby face and a heel both like putting him over. Like the natural disasters would be like, maybe Sid could be the third natural disaster. And then like Jim Duggan would be like, this is my kind of guy. So you didn't really, they were really trying to muddle the waters. Oh, is he going to be a baby face? Is he going to be? Although, again, even as a kid, when he had the Justice nickname instead of Vicious, it kind of telegraphed that he was going to be a babyface, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, as we mentioned with the finish, um, Warrior chases off Adnan and the Iron Sheik slash Colonel Mustafa. And uh, Hogan, after the leg drop, pins Slaughter. It's kind of the end of their feud. And, uh, yeah, so... Sid Vicious comes or Sid Justice comes back to the ring and him and Hogan have this incredibly long pose down goes on that way way peaking, too long. That peeking is very silly when like Sid like peeks out and his yeah. like head is like just out that yeah. big chin out in the curtain yeah. and he's looking around. Yeah, it's it's funny. Um but yeah, they pose down, crowds into it though. And uh as far as apexes go here, mm. this could be an interesting one. So Hulk Hogan passed Pass. Yep, P- definitely passed. Well, okay, wait, wait, hold on. When was it? I'd probably have to go eighty-seven to eighty-eight ish. I would go even earlier, like eighty-five to eighty-seven. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like oh, that general period. Yeah. It's it's WrestleMania three, right? That's, yeah. Eighty seven. Okay. Yeah. That. Yeah. WrestleMania three. Yeah. If, if you wanted to identify it, yes, as, as one singular moment. Yes, him slamming and beating on okay. the sort of. Is, yeah, Hogan's an interesting case though because I would for sure always say the the mid eighties there, but. Some people are going to say NWO because it gave new life to the to the business. Now, as a performer, he wasn't as good, but yeah, it was it was a huge. There was a lot of bad though in that too. There was, yeah. yeah. Plus, all those people are morons. (laughs) But he did have a rebirth in '96, no doubt about it. Yeah, but no, I I think when people when you think Hulk Hogan, you think the mid '80s Hulk. Yeah, yeah, and so Warriors passed as well. I would say. Um, WrestleMania six. Yeah. Yeah. 89 to 90. That was his peak. And so the rest of these guys, I guess we're all past. Yeah. Slaughter's certainly passed. Sheik's obviously passed. And Adnan, well, I didn't know anything about him until I researched him tonight. So. Yeah. So Sheik Sheik and Slaughter, that's another thing, too, that that was not touched on. Their height was their feud against one another in 1984. That's what I was wondering. You guys are a lot more educated in the history of wrestling. Is what is Sergeant Slaughter's peak? I would say 83, 84, um, which spans multiple promotions. Yeah. Um, he was in Crockett in 83. Um, you know, the stuff with Don Carnotal against Steamboat and Youngblood. And then I think, you know, yeah, the Iron Sheik feud is his height in WWF. Yeah, probably, yeah, 84 or so they were wrestling, right? Yeah. Yeah, the the boot camp match is like one of the best WWF matches of the nineteen eighties. Yeah, that's like June eighty four, I believe. So, mm. yep. So I guess everyone's. I mean, it's it's a it's a star studded main event, especially on the babyface side. But everyone looking back was past their prime at this point. Yeah, and even Sid the ref. What is Sid's prime? Because that's actually interesting. I, because it's so much failing to live up to potential. Well, he's more interested in playing softball, Kyle. Yes, but <laughs> I, I think I don't know. For me, I loved like Sid when he was part of the skyscrapers with Dan Spivey. Like, and they would just like destroy jobbers. Yeah, but like, I don't think that's a f- fair to call that his peak, though. I think it was Sid Justice posing behind fields of grain for WWE magazine. <laughs> if I, I had mean, to pick, I'd probably say his, his run with the horsemen right before coming to WWF. Yeah. Yeah. Like when he, you know, I mean, he did main event WrestleMania eight against Hulk Hogan. Yeah. That's so, the answer. I mean, it, it, that, that's kinda, the answer right yeah, there. It, it's kind of tough not to say that that's not his peak career. Because, I mean, he, he's highlighted two WrestleManias, but, I mean, that Undertaker one is, like, one of the worst closers, if not the worst closer in Mania history. So. I just I just feel like when you think – I know it was in the headline because Hogan was involved. But, man, when you think about WrestleMania 8, that's not even close to what comes to mind for me, that match. I automatically go to Brett Piper and the Savage Flair match. It's just—it's not so, the most memorable so the, part of the match of the. So, the what's show. the first thing you think of when you think of Sid Justice, or Vicious? Probably the WCW run right before he came to WWF. Although, I mean, I was older at the time, so like watching live, 
I'm I think back to that second run with the WWF too when he when he had the feud with Michaels. But uh, if I if I look at his entire career arc, that's now, true. Yeah, he he was a WWF champion too. And he so, headlined yeah. another WrestleMania. Yeah, yeah, so. that's what I said against Taker. Yeah, he kind of had a rebirth there too. I mean. Yeah, I mean, I was I was just getting in my teenage years there, watching it live at the time. I thought he was a pretty big deal in '96 and '97. But uh, looking back now, I think his best work was around like '90 or so, '90 to '90 to early '91, probably. But uh, I think he was phoning it. it. He, he, I'll tell you what, his behavior at the first Super Brawl is like some of the most unprofessional shit you'll ever see. They do a stretcher match against Eligante, and like he doesn't even like get on the stretcher. He just like he gets put on it. And then he just like stands up and just walks out right out of the promotion. <laughs> God bless him though. They promised him the main event at WrestleMania to jump and he did and he got it. Yeah. Yeah. So May 90, he joined the horseman. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I mean, that's, that's going to be a career highlight for anybody, but uh, he didn't fit that though. I, 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 you know, it was okay to bring him back, you know, cause he had just been with the skyscrapers previously, but I don't think, I mean, obviously, you know, Rick and Arn have expressed their disdain in past interview, you know, interviews after the fact, but Sid, I don't think was a good fit for the horseman personally. I like the war games match when, you know, he almost kills Brian Pillman, but I, I, I just don't think he was a great fit for that group. Okay. So as far as his WWF runs go, then would you choose that 91, 92 period? Or that ninety six ninety seven period as his better run. Wow, that's a it's. Hmm. Wow, that's a great question. He was really over when he came back in ninety six. Yes. And then, but and then he loses. He still winds up headlining Mania. And then it's kind of just over, though. It's just kind of over after that. I mean, he does make a few sporadic appearances, but he gets hurt. Yeah. I I don't know. You know, it's one. It's six to one half a dozen the other. I wouldn't get mad if somebody picked one over the other. I think if pressed, if if pressed, I'd take ninety six, ninety seven, just because he was more regular. Like he was around a lot more and and more involved in the top of the card, like consistently. And he had good matches with Sean. Yeah, I mean, he got hurt. You know that that's the thing. You know, with this run. He gets hurt not long after this, and that kind of like curtails the babyface part of the run. And then he just sort of leaves abruptly after WrestleMania 8. Yeah. Um, so he didn't really get a full heel run either. That's true. Yeah, I think I think that when well, he first came back, I think in 95, but then 96, 97, that to me, that was his better WWF run, unquestionably. Well, well no, he well, he no, he leaves again. That that that's true. He actually has three runs. Because he leaves in 90... He, I mean, he isn't gone for long, but he misses the first half of 96. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, he, he, um, I don't know what the thing was, but, you know, I think he's on the last in your house of 95. But then he just disappears for the first half of night because he was he replaces the Ultimate Warrior at the International Incident pay-per-view. Yeah, which came out of, completely out of nowhere, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think, yeah, just just his his work is better in 96. And into 97, I think. Well, he's working with better guys. Yeah. That's why. I mean, he's working with, you know, and he works with Brett a little bit in the early part of 97. So, um, yeah, of course, he's going to have better matches than, you know, against, you know, a still pretty green Undertaker and Hulk Hogan. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, 
Sid's an interesting case study. It's it's kind of hard to pick out the highlights for him there. But uh, by, by the way, Piper Roddy Piper does tell Bobby Heenan in this match, "quote You don't like anything except those nine seven six numbers," which made me laugh. <laughs> remember phone sex numbers? What a hoot those were! Huh? <laughs> oh, God, I don't really remember them. Oh, okay, very clearly, liar. I don't, I don't know about you. Well, I mean, I remember <laughs> hearing about them, but I'm I don't think I was calling them. God, you're young, man. <laughs> no, I remember hearing about him, but I, I couldn't call him. I didn't want that showing up on the bill. I might call one tonight. <laughs> if they're still around. I was what? just going to say, I, I doubt they're really around. Or Isn't that yeah. just all online now? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start fishing for one. <laughs> hope, the, I hope that's tune, the only tune, thing you're fishing for tonight. Yeah, tune into the next Patreon episode here. <laughs> and, and find out if Kyle got a, made a successful phone sex call. Oh, my God off the rails oh speaking of love and lust let's get to this <laughs> wedding <laughs> now i gotta tell you one of the first things i noticed watching this back on the wwe network was that they edited that damn video before the wedding because that was not the song that played on SummerSlam on the coliseum video or the pay-per-view they had some weird country song um but the original video uh what was that song called I don't know. It wasn't the one they, they have on the network, though. I looked it up earlier now. I can't remember. That's right. Oh, God. Called. I can't think what the name of the song is. It's uh, kind of a famous song. Yeah. Let me look. Randy Savage, Liz Video, SummerSlam. It's like, it's called Together or something like that. I yeah, don't know. Together. Da, da, yeah. Da, da, and that is not on the. Yeah. I don't know. For some reason. Oh, this is why I thought this was weird. Because I looked it up earlier. And uh, the, the one with the actual, like, music video they have on the wwe youtube page with the original song <laughs> so like they've clearly either paid for the rights or have the rights. so i don't know why they switched it on the version that's on the network but the version on the network is not the original song and it's a really crappy crappy song not not that either are like fantastic but i remember seeing that one in 91 and later on the coliseum and yeah. it's like kind of an iconic <laughs> song for this whole yeah, storyline yeah, the the original, I think they, they just kind of rhyme together and forever a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's together, not a great song, but it, it stood forever, out to me. Yeah, together, <laughs> this is going to be forever. playing in the background of this show right now, too. But it stood yeah. out to me right away because I'm like, what the hell is this song? And uh, it was not the original. So I think I feel like I remember when I watched this the first couple times, I thought the wedding segment was like way longer than it actually is um, because when you watch it on the show, like I was pausing on the network once in a while. Cause when I was watching this, I was getting ready to eat dinner and I had to come back to it. And it was like, Oh, there's only like 10 minutes left. Like they really, they get the whole thing in really quickly coming down the aisle, doing the ceremony, leaving the celebration. It's, it's very, very brief. And, uh, Meltzer wrote in the observer at the time. And I did not notice this watching the show, but he said that like the crowd was just really filing out after that Hogan warrior match. And, WWF had to be scrambling because everyone was leaving the arena. But when I watch it on the network, it looks like that place is pretty full still. I did not see a lot of empty seats. Do you guys notice empty seats during this segment? Any either of you, Justin? I I don't know, but you may have been distracted by what I I am assuming you were eating Taco John's. I wish I was, just so I could rub it into Kyle, but I was not. (laughs) Damn it, man. To live in the upper Midwest. <laughs> Although there is one like less than two miles from my house, Kyle. So I'm, I think I might have to go there tomorrow. Fuck it. 
<laughs> so do I. <laughs> yeah, no, I I I was really looking for that cuz I looked back through the observer before watching it just to see what Dave pointed out in 91 and to watch for on the show on this rewatch and it's like oh talking about how everyone's leaving and i did not see people leaving at all and i did not notice empty seats anywhere i mean there may have been some i mean i'm not gonna you know this isn't the podcast where we just yell fake news at dave Meltzer. um you know that's uh, i'll leave it up to you know eric bischoff for that but um you know it is kind Uh, of too soon it is kind of odd to just like end a show with a, a wedding you know, and and to be honest, it's actually been years since I've watched the actual wedding segment on this. You know, I just always get to the post-match angle, which I don't think the live crowd was shown. That was saved for syndication. Yeah, it's the, not on the, the network The Roberts either. Undertaker. Yeah, it's not on the network. Uh, I was waiting for it because on the Coliseum video, it's... It is oh, it's right not after the on the show. network. It is not on the network. No, when you, when you watch the show on the network, it just ends with the wedding. And uh, that's oh, why I was kind of surprised. God. Yeah, because when I was pausing it to see how much time was left, I'm like, there's no way that like uh, wedding party stuff is going to air, and it's it is not on there. Like, they might have it uploaded on some other show or something. Uh, but if you watch SummerSlam, you're not seeing that at all. But it was definitely on the Coliseum video yes, they was. released. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was like okay, a bonus so, feature yeah. afterwards. Yeah. So I'm just going to assume that the live crowd did not see that at all. I mean. And then, you know, they didn't see it until the first time we all saw it on syndication. Yeah. And, you know, part of that, it goes back to, you know, the warrior warrior getting fired. They were probably scrambling a little bit. Yeah. So I wonder when they came up with this idea of having Roberts and The Undertaker interrupt the reception. Mm-hmm. It had to be filmed the same night, don't you think? I believe it was filmed backstage. Yeah. If I If I remember the story correctly. Yeah. So Meltzer had said, looking back now in the Observer, that fans were leaving in droves during the wedding ceremony. And again, I certainly did not notice that. Maybe in the upper deck, which you couldn't see on on television, but the lower decks all appeared to be full still on MSG. Um, By the way, Meltzer says about that video with that song we were talking about, great video, by the way. So Dave really liked it. (laughs) Dave tucks his shirt into his jeans, too, though. (laughs) Um, now here's something interesting. Cause this is going to get to what you had said earlier. I think I saw it in your show notes, Kyle. He said, um, well, nothing like this has really ever been done before. And hopefully there was a good reason behind that. So who was to tell ahead of time how it would work or how it would play? Didn't you say they had done wedding angles before this? Yeah. And so it's been about the uncle Elmer wedding. Oh yeah. There you go. I couldn't remember what it was, but that's it. I guess Dave forgot I mean, about that, that one too. That was played a lot more for laughs than this was. Yeah. Um, so no, it just ends with the Savage theme playing. They're celebrating in the crowd. Nothing about that wedding reception and Jake Roberts, uh, which was a bonus feature on the Coliseum video. And uh, I, yeah, it was. It, I think it aired in syndication, like you said. I, yeah, it, it aired the, on the first Superstars and Challenge after this. So now, I think it was what they went right to. Um, and you know, I, I don't think anyone's going to argue that, you know, the warriors firing kind of is a happy accident in the sense that it, you know, Savage Roberts 
is just much better than Warrior Roberts ever could have been. I mean, Warrior Roberts had those goofy uh, vignettes, whereas Savage Roberts was very real, you know, with like a wedding being interrupted and was just an infinitely better feud than Warrior Roberts could have been. Yeah, the the segment, that's one of the most like famous and memorable segments from my childhood during this period is that snake gnawing on Savage's arm a couple months later. I mean, the post-match at the This Tuesday in Texas pay-per-view is just jaw-dropping how awesome Jake Roberts is. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, something, again, that you would not see on WWE TV is is slapping a woman. Um, But that that is just incredible stuff at that show. And the whole feud is just remarkable. Yeah, the Cobra angle, um, you know, Savage being fired up to get reinstated. He has, like, a promo... Um, a couple weeks after this on Superstars, which is just one of his best promos of all time. And and it, for those who haven't seen, I, I'm assuming most people have seen the post-show angle where Jake Roberts and The Undertaker interrupt the wedding reception and you know lay out Randy Savage. There's the Cobras, the mysterious gift. Sid runs them off. Um, I, I would call that actually the highlight. You know. Brett Perfect's the obvious in-ring highlight of the show, but this is the co- that's the co-highlight of the show, I guess, even though it, it didn't air to the live crowd. Yeah, mind-blowing it's not on the network broadcast. You'd have to seek it out somewhere else. It's on YouTube. I just looked it up, so you can see it that way, if you've, if you've never seen it. So, yeah, that's SummerSlam 91. Anything we didn't get to you guys wrote down in your notes? As someone who's proposed, I wish that I had Vince McMahon and Roddy Piper... <laughs> Being the peanut gallery during my proposal. Get down on your knees, Roddy yeah. Piper in the background. <laughs> I don't think he's going to do it, Roddy. I don't think he's going to do it, Roddy. <laughs> oh, to be young again back in 1991, guys. Thanks for going back in the time machine with us. That was SummerSlam 91. Uh, we'll be coming back to you with another one of these cl- Top Rope Nation classic shows. Like we said, this one was the free preview of what we're going to be doing. We love talking classic wrestling, going back to our childhood. Uh, we're going to look at past shows. We're going to look at past news, newsworthy events, years, maybe rebook some angles, get into all that kind of nerdy talk, which I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you love to hear. So uh, those will all be Patreon exclusive. So patreon.com slash top rope nation if you want to get all the content. But uh, yeah, it's SummerSlam 91. George H.W. Bush was the president. Dan Quayle was the vice president. Yeah, boy. And Hulk Hogan was still ruling the WWF. So on that note, we will catch you guys with our flagship podcast, Top Rope Nation, here in a couple of days to talk about the modern-day WWE and what was going on 27 years after SummerSlam 91. We'll catch you guys then.